0: Well, one of the reasons I think that um, there's been such angst about this policy is because it appears arbitrary. You can have two people sitting side by side. One of them's fully invested in domestic equities. The other one's not. Same income, same wealth, just like those compare the yeah. pair. Same
1: wealth. <laughs> yeah.
0: And, and one of them could be slugged, slugged to the chin of $10,000 and the other one's not. And I think a lot of the angst about this policy is that it looks like people are in the same situation. Mm. And that plus the confusion about who would actually be affected is why this caused such a stir at the time.
1: Welcome to the Grattan Podcast Channel. You're with Megan from the Grattan Institute. And today we're discussing Labor's dividend imputation reforms. Dividend imputation. If I'm honest, not being an economist or owning any shares, I'd actually never heard the term before it became the hot topic of late March following the announcement of Labour's plan to abolish refunds of unused imputation credits. Indeed, it generated a significant amount of confusion in the media about the economic effects and who would actually pay. And that confusion was not helped by the many claims and counterclaims that became part of the story following the announcement. So what's the real story? With so many pieces of conflicting information released on this issue, I've asked Grattan's Budget Policy and Institutional Reform Program Director, Danielle Wood, and Australian Perspectives Fellow, Brendan Coates, to join me on today's podcast to cut through this debate and shed some light on exactly what this policy will mean and who it will impact. Welcome, Danny. Welcome, Brendan. Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks, Megan. Thanks, Danny.
1: First and foremost, just to clear up any confusion, and realistically, this is for my own benefit, what exactly is dividend imputation, Brendan?
0: Well, you know, it's a term that most Australians wouldn't know unless they're a financial planner or perhaps retired. Um, so I think there's a few people who've got a, a preview of what's going to keep them interested later in life. Uh, so look, Australia's dividend imputation system essentially it's about ensuring shareholders are not taxed twice on corporate profits. So at the moment we have company tax in australia so you pay company tax uh, companies pay taxes on the profits that they earn um, and then those dividends are passed on to individuals that own those shares um, as dividends and then taxes paid on those and the purpose here is to make sure that all those dividends end up essentially being taxed at people's personal income tax rates and the company tax just acts essentially as a withholding tax the company's collected on your behalf and then it gets passed through and the way it gets passed through is that are uh, franking credits are attached to dividends paid to shareholders reflecting the company tax that's already been paid and they can be used to offset any personal income tax the shareholder holder owes to the tax office and so Australia is relatively unique in having this kind of system mm. so lots of countries either have systems where ta- profits are taxed twice or there's a lower rate of tax applied to those dividends when they are given to individuals. So there might be taxed at the company tax rate and then at a very low rate in the hands of the individual. Mm-hmm. Now, refunds of unused franking credits were only introduced in 2001. So before that, the, because you can only claim a, a, a franking credit to reduce your tax liability if you have to pay some tax, um, in the past, before 2001, those franking credits just got Exhausted. So, if you didn't have any other tax to pay, you didn't get use of the franking credits, which means you didn't get the tax that had been back that had been paid on your behalf by the company. Now, the logic when this was introduced in two thousand and one under um, the Howard uh, Costello government was that the logic was essentially so that people with no or low income should receive equivalent tax treatment as others. Any unused or excess franking credits left over after someone had reduced their tax liability to zero, or if they didn't have a tax liability in the first place, returned via the che- via a check from the government. Um, yeah, it essentially just means that those, those profits, those dividends are only taxed at individuals' marginal rates of personal income tax, and the company tax rate, in effect, doesn't really matter to them.
1: And so... Can you explain then how Labor's policy will actually work?
0: So Labor's policy is to abolish the refundability of those franking credits. So if you're in a situation where you don't have any other tax liability, you'll no longer get a cheque from the government, from the ATO, refunding you the tax that's been paid on your behalf. Um, Now, that's going to affect those that don't have any tax liability, which... Is essentially, in terms of the personal income tax system, it's retirees because they tend to be the ones that have no tax liability. In part because they have quite a generous tax-free threshold for retirees because of the senior senior Australians' pensioners tax offset, and also because superannuation income is tax-free in the hands of the individual. So when you get a withdrawal from your super fund, it doesn't count as income. It doesn't show up on your tax return. Um, the other group it's probably it'll hit are, are self-managed super funds because they don't pay. Any tax at the moment if you're in the if you're a retiree because you tend to not be making contributions which normally would be taxed in the hands of the superannuation fund at 15% so you know when you get your wages and you have the super guarantee contributions come out they're taxed in the fund not in the hands of the individual Um, and they're also not paying any tax on those super earnings so they don't have any tax due and therefore they can't make use of franking credits unless they're refundable Um, and of course those SMSFs are ultimately owned by individuals so the policy caused quite a lot of stir um, when it was first introduced, uh, and confusion over who was affected. Well, I suspect we'll talk through that. Mm. But then, since the initial policy, which was expected to raise five billion dollars a year, Labor announced a pensioner guarantee um, to shield all government pensioners and allowance recipients uh, from the abolition of cash refunds, and essentially grandfathered a bunch of self-managed super funds where they also had at least one retiree, sorry, one pensioner. As a member of the SMSF, so SMSFs can have up to four members. So, for those that already had an SMSF had a pensioner as part of it, they were fine. Um, I suspect quite a few people called their financial planners that morning to ask whether they could add a pensioner to the self managed super fund. <laughs> Thankfully, you only had a day's notice to do it, and I think it takes a bit longer than that. So, mm. um, look that that carve out costs about seven hundred million dollars over the Ford estimates. So it's a relatively small amount of money. So the savings, ten point seven billion over those four years, rather than eleven point four. So it didn't cost them much. Mm-hmm.
1: And so on that, then, Danny, what was Labor really trying to achieve in introducing this policy? Uh, look, it's pretty clear that it was about budget repair. Or they've clearly stated that they were trying to do it to repair the budget. Mm-hmm. So you know, as we all know, the Commonwealth government's been running some pretty sizable deficits since the global financial crisis, sitting about two percent of GDP. Um, and both sides um, have a target of having the budget in balance over the cycle. So we know both sides of government are looking for ways to either increase revenue or cut spending. This policy is very successful at increasing revenue. So the PBO estimates that um, in the medium term, it's going to raise about eight billion dollars a year. Wow, which is a big amount. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about it's about double what um, Labor's capital gains tax negative gearing policy will raise. Um, And, you know, as Brendan and I spend a lot of time looking at policies on the tax side of the budget, um, it's pretty big in the scheme of things. The disclaimer is we haven't seen that PBO costing, um, so we don't know what assumptions they've made. Uh, But even if it's, you know, even if the the costing's on the optimistic side, um, it's still a lot of money. Um, What will be really interesting, I think, in the lead up to the election is to see to what extent that money really is going to budget repair Mm -hmm. versus funding other commitments that the party might want to make Mm -hmm. um, in an election year. Um, And look, the the reason the policy raises such a a big amount um, is because of the way it interacts with the tax-free superannuation that Brendan was talking about. So when refunds were first introduced back in 2000, they cost the budget about 500 million a year, which is about 2% of company tax collections at that time. Because there just weren't that many Australians with low taxable incomes that earn shares. Right. Since then, by making superannuation withdrawals tax-free, you have a large and growing group of kind of older, wealthier people that have low taxable incomes because they've got their money in superannuation funds. So when you combine that with refundability, that means there's this big and growing group that are getting these cash refunds. Those are now costing $5 billion, or about 8% of company tax revenues. So effectively, you're eroding your company tax revenue base mm. because more and more of it is being taxed in the hands of individuals that have low or zero in a lot of cases as marginal tax rates. So I guess that leads me to my next question then. What are the economic effects of this policy? Uh, the million dollar question. <laughs> Look, there's, there's really sort of what I would call is two categories of economic effects. Mm-hmm. So they is the economic benefits that come from dividend imputation and you can think of this as kind of a partial winding back of those benefits. And then there's economic effects because this is changing tax rates and that's going to change behaviour. So I'll I'll take you through both of those at a time. So dividend imputation is an area where the literature around exactly what impact it has on investment is really, really contested. Right. Um, And in looking at it, It actually struck me that one of the reasons might be this makes a really big difference for um, regulated firms. Mm. It has an important impact on their cost of capital and therefore the amount that they're allowed to charge. These things are often contested between the regulator and the firm and they go through processes with the tribunal. And then you have experts that that come along and try and say it's really important or it's not really important because it makes a big difference to the firms, um, to the firm's regulated return.
0: So, what's a regulated firm and an example?
1: Um, like an electricity network business, for example. Um, so, they would be fighting it out in the competition tribunal, or at least in recent years they have been around actually what impact dividend imputation has on their cost of funds.
0: Mm.
1: So there's a lot of money on the line and you have experts that are being paid by one side or the other, and I suspect that may have something to do with why we end up with such polarization when we're talking about the economic effects. Mm -hmm. So if we assume that dividend imputation does have some effect on the cost of capital, so then a partial winding back of that policy will have some impact on the level of investment of domestic firms. Um, There are also other economic benefits of dividend imputation. It reduces the tax bias that would otherwise exist towards debt finance and it increases dividend payouts. And those are both things that have been credited with improving financial stability in Australia. So again, if you're partially winding back that system, um, you're also going to lessen some of those benefits of the proposed policy. As I said the kind of the second effect is that you would expect to see some change in savings behavior so removing the refundability of excess credits is equivalent to placing a minimum tax rate on dividend income so it's a departure from the principle that people pay tax pay tax on company profits at their marginal rate of tax what it means if, if you have a low marginal tax rate you're now effectively paying tax at the company tax rate. Mm. So you have to expect that's going to reduce overall savings. Effectively, mm. it's an increase in the cost of saving. But what we know um, from past work we've done looking at the literature in this area is that actually doesn't change aggregate savings behaviour that much. But what we would expect to see is a change in the choice of where people save. So it will reduce the incentive for people on low taxable incomes to invest in shares because it's increasing the average effective tax rate they face from um, putting their money into those investments. So you might expect to see some degree of switching to to other types of investments, like foreign equities or like property. The other thing the tax does is to introduce a distortion between choices of superannuation fund. Um, So between investing in an APRA regulated fund, which is like an industry fund Mm -hmm. or a bank fund, um, and a self-managed super fund. Um, So very few APRA regulated funds are going to be affected by this change. And that's because they have a sufficient stream of taxable income, effectively new contributions being made, that they are able to use all of their imputation credits. They do not reduce their tax to zero and receive refunds. Um, In in contrast, um, self-managed super funds, especially if they're in the retirement phase, don't have any income tax, as Brendan's already said if they've got some share of equities in their portfolio, they would be agreeing credits at the moment and that will be lost by the policy. Mm. So it's effectively changing the after-tax return for putting your money in an APRA fund versus putting it into a self-managed super fund. Are we going to see a whole lot of people with self-managed super funds switching to APRA funds? Hard to know. Mm. Um, I suspect that One of the key attractions of having a self-managed fund is that it's self-managed. You have control and autonomy um, and whether those people are then going to respond to that tax differential and, you know, jump up and put their money in an APRA fund, we don't know yet. Yeah.
0: I think it's interesting. Part of the reason why I think this has become so costly is because back in 2000, self-managed super funds weren't very popular. They didn't really exist that much. So... If most people are in an APRA regulated fund like Unisuper, where you pull together with thousands of other people and your contributions are paid tax and therefore – the um, so if you're a retiree, the contributions of younger people are taxed in the fund and therefore you can offset – the fund can offset the imputation credits you receive against their tax on the taxpayer on those contributions. That's like a really big change from when this was introduced. Now, that doesn't mean you should do what they've done and reverse it. Um, but it is a big reason as to why it's now so much more expensive than it was, I suspect, back in 2000, Yeah, that's a really good
1: point. So it's not just about the change in the tax treatment of superannuation. It's actually the superannuation vehicle itself that people are choosing that's leading to that erosion of the, the company tax base.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Mm.
1: So you mentioned in there, you know, low-income earners and the effect on them and talking about, you know... People's particular superannuation funds. So let's let's get really clear here. Who is actually affected by this policy?
0: Well, how long have we got? <laughs> um, so stop <laughs> him now! I know, oh no! I know, if you, look, um, we we'll, we'll talk it through. But I also should mention that we did do a detailed piece on this question in Inside Story, um, which. Called-
1: we will link to yes. in the podcast notes
0: called "The Real Story of Labor's Dividend Imputation Reforms and Who Is Affected." So, look, the the debate goes like this: Labor says that most of those are hit are wealthy retirees who are not paying their "quote unquote" fair share of tax. Uh, Scott Morrison and the government counter saying that abolishing refunds of unused imputation credits will mainly hurt low income earners. Now, part of the confusion all this stems from the fact that data on what retirees earn, what they own, and what tax they pay is really highly fragmented. So you know, personal income tax returns provide only a patchy picture of the earnings and the wealth of retirees. Like we don't know what those superannuation withdrawals are because they don't even have to be declared on personal income tax returns since super payouts were made tax-free under the Howard Costello government in 2006.
1: So we really have no clear picture of what people have in their superannuation even?
0: We know what people have in their superannuation, but we don't know the their... we In the public domain, we do not know which taxpayer owns which superannuation fund, and in particularly Ugh. which taxpayer owns which self-managed superannuation fund. Right. So because if APA regulated funds were affected, we could trace it through through the survey, Income and Housing and these other sources that give us a holistic picture of income and wealth, mm. but there's no flag on the ta- on those surveys to tell the difference between a self-managed super fund and an APA regulated fund, so we just don't know that information. Right.
1: Um, so we know what some people have in super, we know what some people hold directly, like direct shareholdings, mm. but we don't know across those two sources a of investment, decision. who it is that actually has that particular fund and that particular shareholding.
0: Now, the Treasury and the Parliamentary Budget Office do have more of this information because they have linked the tax returns for individuals and the tax returns for self-managed superannuation funds. Mm. So they can see more of the story. Um, but I think even in that case, if you had to guess, I don't think they'd have a fully complete story of exactly what's going on, and they have to make some assumptions to get do these kind of costings. So um, the... The criticism. So the 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 debate is that the government says that there's six hundred and ten thousand low income earners um, who are affected, and the issue is that he is saying that those he's using taxable income to say who these low income earners are. Now, of course, superannuation earning so superannuation withdrawals are not included in taxable income, um, and so you know it is pretty misleading because taxable superannuation withdrawals is like the largest or one of the largest sources of Income for a lot of retirees so you take the example of a self-managed retiree couple they could have 3.2 million in super plus their own home plus say 200,000 Australian shares held outside of super and we know a lot of people do have savings outside of super that's been one of the key insights of Grattan's work in this area for a, the last couple of years so they could draw say hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year in super income fifteen thousand dollars a year in um, income from those dividends that they hold from shares held outside of super and they'd report a combined taxable income of just $15,000 together and they pay no income tax. And so it's not really credible to say that there are 610,000 retirees that get by on less than 18,200 a year, uh, which is the tax free threshold, uh, because that's about 20% below the poverty line. And so who are these people? Well, most of them are not max rate pensioners. Instead, what we're really talking about here is we're mainly talk- we're talking about a few max rate pensions that are affected. I think the number is about fourteen thousand. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's about two hundred thousand part rate pensions that are affected, and then everyone are, the rest that are affected are essentially self funded retirees not eligible for either a full or a part rate pension. And they're of course,
1: of course, as you said before, though we know now that those pensions have been carved out yes. of the policy as well. Mm-hmm. So they actually they were affected under the original policy, but Labor has announced that they'll continue to. The Get full rate pensioners. Full and part, rate, and part pensioners. rate pensioners. Do we have any idea of what the figure is on the ones sitting outside of both of those? Oh, what's the so full number? So it's 1.1 1. 1. 1. 1. million is the full number. Right. So it must be about nine eight 850,000 to 900,000.
0: Right. Yep. Yeah, so – and the issue is that we, we can see these individuals there, the su- savings they have outside of super, but we can't trace through – A lot of these people will also be the same people who are affected um, um, by self-managed super funds. So the reality is that equity holdings are pretty highly skewed. At least if we start talking about outside of super, equity holdings are pretty highly skewed. So the wealthiest 20% of retirees own 86% of all shares right? And then the poorest half of all retirees only own 2% of all shares. So in terms of those who are affected outside of super, it's mainly going to be hitting those, uh, you know, that are at the top end of the wealth distribution. Mm -hmm. And when you're a retiree, income is not probably the best measure of someone's means. So if you think of the way that people um, save and they go about planning their retirement, you work, you earn an income through life, you reach retirement and then you've got this very often very sizable nest egg right um, whether it's superannuation or your house or something else and then what you do is you draw down on that over time now obviously people who are had low incomes through their life will have a very small nest egg and mainly rely on the pension which is taxable those and is now those people won't now be affected those that um, earn quite good money through their life and now retire will actually have quite sizable nest eggs Um and the issue here, I suppose, is that a lot of people don't draw down all that much on their retirement savings. So if you're drawing, there are two different ways of thinking about income in retirement. You can think of income as how much am I earning on my investments or how much am I drawing down um, on my capital? Um, and so what tends to happen is that people often draw down only at the minimum drawdown rate of, say, 4%. And so they might be earning $50,000, $60,000 a year in earnings, but only taking out You know a relatively small amount, like thirty or forty thousand dollars. So, if you're on forty thousand dollars, even if it's tax free, it might sound low relative to full time pre tax wages. Mm. um, But they tend to have relatively low um, expenditure because they're no longer savings and no longer having to pay off the mortgage. So, when we think of that taxable income stat, it's worth keeping in mind that forty three percent of the wealthiest ten percent of over sixty fives have a taxable income of less, would have a taxable income we estimate of less than $18,200. So that taxable income stat is not a very good measure or a useful um, measure of who's being hit. Yeah. So overall we do know that of those of the overall tax that's being paid, um, 33% will be paid by individuals. Now that number's probably gone down a bit because those pensioners have come out of the system because of the pensioner guarantee AAP done. Mm. Uh, roughly 60% of the original uh, revenue was going to be paid by self-managed super funds. And a lot of that's coming from those right at the top end of, of that distribution. And then you've got about 7% paid by APRA regulated funds.
1: But all that's true, of course, Brendan, but isn't it the case that the the really wealthy, so those with more than 1.6 million in their account, who we know are now paying some tax on their superannuation after the changes introduced in the last budget, won't they be spared from this policy because they are actually paying tax?
0: Uh, look, yeah, look, that's that's generally true, although there is, I think, a couple of wrinkles in that story. So yeah, if you've got more than 1.6 million in super, you're no longer, you're now paying tax of 15% on anything above that. You're allowed to have 1.6 million in a tax-free super account that's in the retirement phase that you can draw income from. There's, there's no tax on the earnings from that fund. And then anything above that has to be put into another super account which is back in the accumulation phase where you're being taxed 15% on the earnings. So, you know, if you're a worker, you're being taxed on 15% on your super earnings because you're not yet retired. Tax-free super earnings only takes place once you retire Mm. at 60. And so um, for those that have got more than 1.6 million, then theoretically, yes, you're already being taxed. But you've got to keep in mind that if you've – if, say, you have 2 million in super and you used to have 30% invested in equities, which is kind of roughly what the stats say – and you're earning $42,000 a year in dividends and you're probably paying something like $13,000, you're claiming $13,000 in imputation credits. That's roughly how the numbers work through. Mm. Um, you could continue to benefit from imputation credits by shifting all of your equities into the accumulation phase super fund and, shift, and not having any in the the, the drawdown phase fund. Mm. But you can only claim imputation credits on the money that's in the accumulation phase. So you can only have $400,000 in shares in... In domestic shares, right. Whereas you probably had on a two million balance with thirty percent, you had six hundred thousand before. Yeah. So a useful way of thinking about it is that if you have a super balance of more than two point five million dollars a year as an individual, depending on your portfolio choices, you're probably not paying any more tax. Mm. If you've got less than that, you're probably paying some more, but maybe less than those that are. Um, you're, you're still getting some imputation credits, whereas those earning with one less than one point six are so now obviously getting no imputation credits. And so also a lot of those wealthy retirees tend to have large non-super savings. So they have shares, investment property, bank deposits, particularly if you're older because super isn't that mature and therefore a lot of people have large non-super savings and the wealthiest tend to have large non-super savings to go with their super savings. So they're probably still being affected on their non-super savings just by less than because their, their super balance doesn't get affected that much less than others. So it's probably better to think of the proposal as being a complement to the government's recent super changes. Hmm. So those that are already um, now paying tax on one point six million, you're already hitting that group. This doesn't really need to hit them at the same time, um, but it, it does mean that those with smaller, but still potentially still substantial super balances of more than of you know one to one point six million dollars, are starting to pay some tax on those super earnings.
1: Can I play devil's advocate for a minute here? Um, In terms of the budget bottom line and how this affects income, if somebody is then earning less income because they're no longer getting these dividend imputations, they will then end up on a part pension potentially when they weren't before, which means the government is still then giving them something that they weren't? Are you kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul?
0: So, okay, here's the simple answer, right? Um, Yes, a few of those people, because they're now getting less income each year, will probably have less savings overall and they might draw down on their super balances mm. or their, their retirement savings faster. Yep. So, yes, that people, some people will end up probably receiving some pension mm. that didn't before. Now, that's going to be in the Parliamentary Budget Office costings that were done for the government. There will be an interaction effect that's already in there. Now, we haven't seen those costings, but it is absolutely how those costings are done. Right. Now, it's also worth mentioning that the taper rate on the pension – is it, you don't lose a dollar of pension for each dollar of additional income or assets you get. Mm. It's You, like, lose 50 cents. And mm. so the pension payments out the door will inherently be less than the tax that's extra tax that they're they're collecting as mm. a result of these reforms.
1: So in terms of the budget bottom line, bottom line you are still better off in t- the, with this The government policy. is still better off. Yes, it's collecting more dividend, revenue yes,
0: net yeah. of the additional expenses out the other end. No, that's true.
1: So bringing it all together, what is your overall verdict on the quality of this policy? Look, I think from a big picture perspective, it's better than doing nothing. Um, and continuing to let um, working age taxpayers bear the burden of budget repair. And that's certainly what the objectives of the policy were. But I think the right question is actually, are there alternative policies that could deliver a similar thing but at lower economic cost? Mm. And there's certainly a number of policies that Grutton's been putting on the record for a while now Yes, that I think um, tick that box. Yeah, Brendan, you've done a lot of work in that area, I believe.
0: Yeah, so look, the original sin here is making super withdrawals tax-free in 2006. That's the thing that's caused a lot of problems to the budget bottom line. And it's the it's the thing that's going to prove unsustainable over time because it's it's not sustainable to have a well an 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 entire generation essentially check out of the tax system at age sixty five. So the number of older Australians paying tax has basically halved in the last two decades, from twenty seven percent to sixteen percent, um, and. The amount of income tax older Australians are paying has actually gone backwards in real terms, suggested for inflation, compared to two decades ago, despite the fact that incomes have gone up a lot over that period. Mm. They're paying more GST, but they're paying less income tax, whereas every other age group is paying more income tax in real terms because incomes have have risen. Mm. So the things that we recommend, um, and these come from two reports, super tax targeting and another one called Age of Entitlements. Yeah. So the the main thing we need to do is to start is to reverse that 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 policy that allowed um, tax free withdrawals. So mm-hmm. that would save mm-hmm. about two billion dollars a year today and more in future. Where essentially from the first dollar of super earnings, for those in the retirement phase, you would start paying some tax. Mm.
1: So essentially the same rate that people in the contributions phase are paying fifteen percent tax on their earnings.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the other policy you'd probably look at is. You would um, get rid of the higher tax-free threshold that is available just for senior Australians, which due to the, this offset called the seniors and uh, senior Australians and pensioners tax offset, which means that um, pensioners, or sorry retirees can have a much higher tax level of income before they pay any tax, and that if you did that, you could save them an extra 700 million dollars a year. So you, you're getting close to the amount of money that um, labor' is raising from imputation.
1: Mm. But without some of those negative economic effects that we were talking about before.
0: Sure. Yeah, it'd be completely neutral between APRA, Regulated Funds and SMSFs. And um, it wouldn't mess up with the principle that people are that people are being taxed at their personal rates of income tax on those, um, on those corporate profits. So
1: perhaps a more equitable approach overall.
0: Well, one of the reasons I think that um, there's been such angst about this policy is because it appears arbitrary. You can have two people sitting side by side one of them's fully invested in domestic equities. The other one's not. Same income, same wealth, just like those. <laughs> <laughs> same income, same wealth. <laughs> yeah, and and one of them could be slugged, slugged to the chin of $10,000 and the other one's not. And I think a lot of the angst about this policy is that it looks like people are in the same situation. Mm. And that plus the confusion about who would actually be affected is why this caused such a stir at the time.
1: Mm. Thank you so much for your time today, Danny and Brendan. I feel like I'm leaving today's podcast significantly more well-informed on this topic than I was. <laughs> so thanks for that. <laughs> As always, stay up to date with all of Grattan's news, research, and events by following us on Twitter at GrattanInst or on Facebook Grattan Institute. You can also follow Brendan on Twitter at Brendan Coates or Danny at Danielle Iwood, or head to our website to download any of our research. Grattan.edu.au And, of course, if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please do help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes to give it a rating or review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate grattan.edu.au This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.